Well, aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name's Michael Benner, and a uh, pleasure to be with you as always. I, I look forward to this all week, and although it's an odd medium, the vast majority of you listening to this program listen on demand, so to speak, with a podcast or a streaming audio. But there is a group of us that gets together, well, in Hawaii, it's Sunday morning. In uh, the United States, it runs anywhere from 1 to 4 in the afternoon as we begin this program. It's uh, a wonderful habit to get together, and I hope you can join us live whenever possible. It also means you can participate in the program. Um, After my initial introduction of material, we'll go to questions and comments, uh, both by text and by the telephone. And you probably see the text box. It should be defaulted there uh, right on the web screen in front of you. You can turn that on and off with the controls in front of you. There's also a chat. I don't uh, mention it much, but if you want to duck out and see if there's anybody else in the chat room, you can always go there, and that's live chat um, during the, uh, the webinar. And if you're on the telephone and you want to participate, You know, questions or comments, when it comes to that, um, press star 2 on the telephone touchpad. That will raise your hand on my control panel, and I can unmute uh, conference callers one at a time, which is a pretty cool deal. So that works out uh, really well. Passion for Compassion is our topic for the day today. I did a program on compassion a little over a year ago. I thought it was time to reprise the topic. Today is Easter, however, and uh, I'd like to um, talk just a bit about what Easter represents to a mystical Christian or to a mystic in general who doesn't really belong to any particular religion but looks at um, religious allegory Um, I'll say it this way, religious mythology as allegory and metaphor. Uh, Whether real or not, it hardly matters if you get the deeper meaning of these stories. That's sort of the view of a mystic. And so let me precede my comments about passion for compassion, or maybe we'll even work it in together. Because it is Easter, the Easter myth has been conflated with the spring equinox and Easter rabbits and eggs. And we also have um, a resurgence of a real crisis in the Catholic Church that could bring this institution uh, down. Um, I mean, the Catholic Church is many things. It's people, it's buildings and property, it's um, money, It is uh, its own history. It is, in a sense, its own nation, Vatican City. And when I say bring it down, it's not going to just disappear from the face of the earth. There there certainly will always be Catholics, but it must be a painful time to think of yourself as an Orthodox Catholic, uh, really trying to um, The only word I can think of is behave, really trying to behave. I was raised as a Catholic. I left the church by the time I was 12 years old. 
I just couldn't tolerate the teachings. I guess that's why I have that mental block on any other way to describe it. Uh, I never felt devotion. I felt uh, enslavement and uh, a lot of child abuse. I was personally never abused um, sexually. But like many Catholic children, and I think Christian children in general, but especially the Orthodox, the fundamental I was told every week that that Christ on the cross was there because I was bad, because I was a sinner, and that uh, that was Eve's fault. I protested. I actually raised my hand in catechism on a couple of occasions and said, yeah, but I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. What is this original sin? And they pegged it on a woman, Eve, and uh, the snake, and you know the story. And uh, some other time we'll talk about the allegory of the Garden of Eden and what that implies or infers to to mystics around the world. It's a, a rich and wonderful creation myth, but again, it's been twisted to be pretty dark and evil. Uh, anyway, I was not a bad little boy, uh, although I, I felt that I I was being abused by this church and. Christ is still on the cross, and today is Easter. And if the the, the crucifixion on Friday, Good Friday, so-called, um, is a, a horrible myth of of torture and murder, I, I when I I hear Dick Cheney and others uh, um, promoting torture in the United States, I immediately think of Christ on the cross. But um, it could also be the tens of thousands of children we allow to starve every day in this world of ours. Uh, there's plenty of torture. And so um, Sunday, certainly Easter Sunday, then ought to be a wonderful celebration because it's about resurrection. And this is the positive side. You know, so much of Christianity is about the death of Christ. This is about the life of Christ. And what the Christos is that Jesus represented. Sometimes I get an odd look from people when I talk about Jesus of Nazareth embodying the Christos or representing the Christos, which is the Christed soul, the Messiah, the Savior, the, the perfect divine love as the soul and uh, the Buddha nature it's called in the east and everybody's got one it's just uh, <laughs> it's just very deeply hidden in most of us uh, beneath layer after layer of, of fear so this is a difficult time for the Catholic Church with the pedophilia uh, it seems to be definitely related to celibacy I'll let you argue amongst yourselves I um, I don't really have strong opinions about what the Catholic Church needs to do um, besides coming to the 21st century. I find it personally a bit medieval, and I think that uh, it needs to include women and to get real about birth control and and sex outside of marriage, and there's a lot of things that it could do to step into the 21st century. Stop lying about gays and homosexuals and admit that um, 
the Catholic Church is full of uh, gay men and women. Just like the U.S. military has always been. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell is not so gays can suddenly serve in the military. And so the Catholic Church has always been a place for the, the crime is the predatory uh, pedophilia. And remember, pedophilia is a crime. Homosexuality is not. So be careful when people start to conflate the two because some of this priest abuse was definitely heterosexual um, pedophilia as well. So it's a complicated issue. It strikes directly at one of the oldest institutions in the world, one of the wealthiest, and one of the most important institutions to people, their church. And um, I have compassion, as I say, for the situation that the church finds itself in, uh, the Pope is a symbol. It's just that my compassion for the victims uh, tends to pull my attention in that direction. And if, as mystery school students or 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 mystics or those seekers uh, who uh, are attempting to attain a certain level of expanded awareness or or higher consciousness, Again, value our aspiration, our passion for compassion enough to face it, even when it's paradoxical and and difficult. Uh, Can you have enough compassion for the victims of this scandalous pedophilia in the Catholic Church, long-standing by all accounts? Can you have enough compassion for the victims and still have some compassion and mercy and forgiveness left over for the perpetrators? And that's always been difficult for human beings. Um, In fact, this is a good point to segue into our topic for the week today, passion for compassion. The, The mind, the brain likes to divide things into two. It's often called bifurcation, and it's a very good approach to understanding something that's entirely new, that you've never seen. You don't know what to do with it. We usually sort it into either or. Most people's minds are stuck in either or, because they are so overstimulated and so stressed in their daily life and affairs, the mind is so busy with the chatter of a thousand voices competing for attention that it's difficult for most people, most of the time, to get out of either-or binary thinking, everything or nothing. And so emotionally, we have that same tendency. If there is a victim and we have compassion in our heart for the victim, that's the easy part. Okay, The difficult part is to have compassion for the perpetrator. That's the challenge to people to go, well, wait a minute, whose side are you on here? I mean, (laughs) What's your problem? You don't know who's wearing the white hats and who's wearing the black hats. 
you don't know right from wrong, this is obviously wrong. And you're making it right by forgiving the perpetrators. I think maybe the first lesson of compassion I want to talk about today is that the one who is compassionate is the first person to benefit. It's, <laughs> it's like in any expression of love, it's the giver that benefits first. It's not one who receives your love that that benefits so much as the one who gives the love. A charitable, philanthropic person often benefits more than the recipient of their of their charity, and so it is with compassion. So don't worry too much about, uh, you know, some person that has done something wrong benefiting from your compassion in an unfair or unjust way. Uh, You do it primarily for yourself. And what compassion does, I think, is if, if we pursue it as a practice, a passion for compassion to to want to develop our ability to love that much. What compassion does is force you to look at really scary things in your life, force you to face your fear, uh, to, to look at what you're afraid to look at. For example, I mentioned the starving children in the world. This is 2010. Uh, We know how many people there are in the world. We have more than enough food. Most people find that hard to believe. But uh, we have so much corn, for example. We make uh, high-fructose corn syrup out of it. We make ethanol out of it and use it as a fuel. We ship it overseas and feed the world and uh, could grow far more corn than we currently are. There's enormous amounts of food in this world and we could easily feed the population of this world if we really wanted to, if we had both the will and the vision to do it. But we don't. So consequently, every day, twenty to 30,000 people die of extreme poverty, of starvation, starvation-related uh, uh, illness. Most of them children, twenty to 30,000 a day, unnecessarily. And uh, I know that most people have their information turned around and believe that there's not enough food and that there's too many people. And if we start feeding people that are already having too many children, they're going to have even more children and that starvation is the result of overpopulation. Well, in fact, the opposite is true. You have to work with this a minute. It's not that people are starving because there's too many of them. There are too many people because they're starving. In other words, it's it's not that Overpopulation causes hunger. It's that hunger causes overpopulation. Hungry people have more children. Say, why? Why would they do that? Well, because their children die. 
So what's your response to the likelihood that your child is going to die within one year? I live in Hawaii, as you know. It's a big deal here in Hawaii to this day when a baby reaches its first birthday. The most important birthday, the biggest celebration in Hawaii is when your son or daughter becomes one year old because it means now they're likely to survive. (laughs) So, you know, you see your babies dying. You're going to have 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 20 kids so that one or two survive to adulthood. Maybe one of them survives to take care of you in your old age. So the best thing we can do to curb population is feed people. So it's not only morally the right thing to do, it's not only what a compassionate person wants to do is feed hungry people or help hungry people feed themselves. It's more about supporting their independence in a, in a harmonious way than, than real charity or what Americans like to call welfare. All right? You know that allegory about give a man a fish, he eats for one day, teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime, that kind of thing. To help support uh, these people, help so that they can become more self-sufficient. To give people access to the land, that's one of the big problems, is that where there's a lot of hunger and starvation, there are people and there's arable land, but the land is growing to grow, is being used in, in, in plantations to grow flowers or sugar cane or tobacco or, or some such thing, and rather than feeding people basic vegetables and fruits. It's who has access to the land. So to have compassion or a passion for compassion for these 30,000 people that die every day from starvation, most of them children, forces you to gather up your courage and look at what most people don't want to look at. It forces you to face what scares you. This is the fear people have of homeless people, right? Homeless people aren't dangerous or scary. They're mostly tired and low energy. They're not going to attack you. They're not not criminals. They're homeless. What's scary about the homeless is that most people are just one or two paychecks away. And in a couple of months, could end up sleeping in the car if they don't come and take the car. They tell you you own your home They tell you you own your car, but that's only so long as you keep making the payments. Can you say you own it? Right? Unless you're done. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe you've made all the payments, then you truly own this object, but it's usually pretty run down and in need of repair and replacement by that time. I think that may be one of the greatest gifts of a passion for compassion, is facing fear, looking directly at what you don't want to look at and resolving it. When you look directly in the face 
of extreme poverty and global hunger in this world, what you see is a tragedy that's much worse than you might have imagined. It's not just some kind of social, uh, global, collateral damage here that where the rubber meets the road, sorry, but somebody's got to starve. Something about limited resources and a Malthusian doctrine, and as long as it's not me or anybody I know. Nonsense. It's in the interest of every individual in the world. As a family of humanity, to end the unnecessary and the cruel and the unjust suffering and allow these people to feed themselves and to support themselves and to to lead loving and happy and free and, and productive lives. And again, that's not going to compound the problem, as I'm afraid some of the... Uh, 20th century and 19th century thinkers as Malthusian doctrine nonsense. Oh no, we can't feed the hungry people, they'll just have more babies and then the world will be overwhelmed by all these uneducated. Well, that's part of it, isn't it? Not only feeding, but also educating people. Because those are the two how shall I say, categories of people who have the least children well-fed, well-educated. The better-fed people are, the fewer children they have. The better-educated people are, the fewer children they have. That leads to a higher quality of life for all children. Okay. Even if you can economically afford children, they suffer if the family is too big. There's no reason for it. Replace yourself if you want to have kids. But it's selfish to have huge families, enormous families. Most of that just comes from, we're back to the church, aren't we? The the, uh, injunctions against the use of birth control. Back to the church needing to get into the 21st century. We need, we can also promote birth control. But I'm saying the best form of birth control is to feed and educate people. Right? Condoms might be down the list, number four, five, six. And one day, war will be airplanes, bombers, darkening the sky over the most economically depressed areas, dropping bread and books. That's the way to wage a war. You feed and educate your enemy. All right. our, our teachers have told us this. Our spiritual leaders have explained it from time out of mind. And yet often their agents will deny it. I've had arguments with Buddhists about whether Buddhism is a religion of pacifism. I've had arguments with Christians who claim Christ was really not a pacifist. And, uh, of course, it's the thing about holy books. You can, they're written as allegory and, and, and metaphor and symbolism, so you can make of them whatever you want. And, boy, people do. 
uh, onward Christian soldiers. It's just, or the jihad of the Muslims. Jihad is about an internal and intimate and personal struggle uh, to attain uh, your higher nature. And, and the crusade, ideally, is supposed to be the same thing, this internal struggle we have against the temptations of our shadow side, the ego side, our fears. It's a battle between love and fear. Good and evil was really a battle between love and fear, and it's intensely personal. But the fundamentalist takes it literally and then extrapolates it into the world, and now the Crusades is we're going to kill people. We're going to kill people. And the jihad is we're going to kill people. That's why fundamentalism is dangerous. You can't take this stuff literally because people can make an argument for whatever they want. It's odd in the last decade all that we've heard about Muslim terrorists that we never hear about Sufis. And the the um, <laughs> the contribution that the mystical uh, Muslims, mystical side of Islam is made to the, the richness of, of the world spiritually and romantically. Much of what we know about romance really came out of the Middle East. So I would suggest that that's our primary lesson for the day today, that the, one of the very first benefits that I wanted to, to talk about and to look at is the courage, developing courage, that in order to have compassion, you have to look at what you are otherwise afraid to look at. The thing about compassion is that it breaks your heart, and that hurts. And that we all want the warm, fuzzy presence of love, like the warmth of the sun on your skin. What we don't care for is the absence of that warmth, a feeling that we've been abandoned or even betrayed by love. And that could be by spiritual love, that God has abandoned us or, or betrayed us, if you will. And uh, this is a feeling of alienation that is not at all uncommon. Or that a person that we love has betrayed us or abandoned us the feeling is similar, uh, a broken heart. It could be a breakup, you know, a romance breaks up, a marriage breaks up, or it could be that um, people die. Um, it could be losing a job and a career and a house. It could be the dog died or the cat ran away. Or, um, there's all forms, many, many different forms that a broken heart can take, but it always hurts. And few people, very few people, are interested in looking at the growth, I would argue, the growth that comes out of the broken heart. And why is it that we have to have our hearts broken, it seems, from time to time, 
for surely there is no one that has not had the experience. I've met a lot of interesting people in my life with a lot of interesting stories. I don't know that I ever met anybody that didn't have a broken heart at some point, often as early as your teenage years, and uh, whatever it is. And then it just continues through life. Well, if we don't handle that well, it can lead to some serious issues with stress and and sadness and, and depression, serious depression, and um, other forms of anxiety disorders. But if we do learn to handle our broken hearts well, if we do learn to grieve um, our losses and mourn our losses correctly and appropriately by by facing the fear, by looking directly at the broken heart um, with a practice I'm going to describe as many others have as compassion meditation or meditation for compassion or a compassionate meditation, if you will. Compassion meditation is a more elegant and graceful way to to go through that broken heart, to allow yourself to feel, hear my words clearly, to allow yourself to feel the full depth and breadth of that broken heart. See, it takes great courage. And yet what you find is that you can go to pieces without falling apart. The heart, because of its I would argue, magnetic nature. It exists, love, essentially as an electromagnetic field, can get somewhat crystallized or concretized, rigid and fixed, and then it can't grow. And love needs to grow. It needs to expand. It needs to express itself. And if it gets containerized, then the pressure builds and you're setting yourself up for a broken heart. Somewhere along the way, something will happen to break your heart. It's a heart that needs to be broken. Now, you could have avoided that, perhaps. And if not avoided, then as we find our hearts broken, certainly uh, fall on our swords. Be more willing to go through the process. I'm almost uh, reminded here again of the fact that that today is Easter and that Christ allowed himself to go through this process. He stuck around for for the crucifixion on Friday so that he could go through the ascension on Sunday, it's argued. See? Um, Allowing yourself to as I said a moment ago, explore the depth and the breadth of the pain. A funny thing happens when you do that. The pain tends to vanquish. Uh, and, and we discover a very esoteric lesson that pain in our lives, physical or emotional, is a resistance 
circumstances and the conditions of life. And that a full acceptance of what you go through, have to go through, need to go through, albeit we maybe we could have done it a little more graceful or a little more elegantly, but nevertheless, we do need to go through it. Allowing yourself to do that, coming from a compassionate place, you lower and in some cases might even be able to eliminate your resistance to the process, and that's when it gets smoother, more elegant, and more pain-free. This indeed is the secret to physical pain control and emotional pain management is this letting go process. I've done hypnotherapy at the dentist for 35 years, almost 40 years, and many different situations, you know, um, drilling, um, root canals, extractions even with no anesthesia at all. And it's a process of yielding and accepting and surrendering and letting go on a very deep level, releasing and eliminating your resistance that frees you from the pain. So the practice of compassion to look at global starvation, to look at the victims of child abuse in the Catholic Church, and then even to look at the perpetrators without any malice in your heart, without any anger or angst. And then to explore with compassion a deeper and deeper understanding, not a mental but an emotional, and then as you continue the process, a spiritual understanding. When I say not mental, it's you move into compassion, not with logic, but again, with a more intuitive, uh, receptive, uh, allowing yourself to realize. It's a, like the light comes in and you begin to see, oh, I mean, how many pedophiles are victims? of pedophilia? And the answer is most. Critics immediately then say that does not excuse the behavior. Well, of course it does not excuse the behavior. But it does make it more understandable. So there's intuitive understanding that usually trumps mere logic as approach to understanding. And it's certainly more subjective and more personal. And this is, again, the realm of the mystic. To be the pioneer, to go where no, where no one has gone before, into your particular universe of facing what scares the bejesus out of you, looking at the heart of darkness with an open heart. And explore the depth and breadth of that. You can have compassion not only for the victim, you can have compassion for the perpetrators. And that changes you, and many would argue, changes the world. The way it changes you is you become a, a kinder person. You become a, an ambassador of, of loving kindness, of, of forgiveness, of uh, dismissing with a smile uh, and, a, and a peace of mind what might cause other people to become extremely violent and uh, not always out of hate 
sometimes out of love. People will commit all manner of violent atrocity because what they're calling love is really a great fear of love and the power that love has. Again, this makes an argument for the importance of learning to manage your emotional nature before you aspire to, um, or I should, say, I should better say, as you aspire to developing your your spiritual nature. There's no end run around that, though. You've got to got to develop the ego before you can transcend it. Really, you've got to see the self-interest in it before you realize you're not merely the separated self. You're connected to all things. And I guess that's the second bigger lesson here as we talk about compassion and a passion for compassion is that this is a way to realize repeatedly, to awaken from the dream repeatedly, uh, at least once a day and hopefully more, and realize that in spite of the appearance of separation, there's just one life here. There is one thing, as the old Egyptians used to say, one thing at work. Or the Buddha would say, one mind. Or the New Agers say, one life. And it's an important concept because, again, the monotheistic religions of the West have bought into separation so completely that you are not me, and this is not that, and we are not us, <laughs> that even the sense of the creator in the Judeo-Christian and, and Muslim world is of a separated being that lives outside of its creation and very, very far away. Again, the mystics in all of these religions behind or above these religions all know better. There's a wonderful old Sufi saying about the divine God being closer than your own breath or in the breath or that you breathe and not far away but in all things. Now, some religious people will say God is everywhere but still portray him as a man like the Sistine Chapel ceiling with arms and legs and fingers and toes and of course he's a white guy and he's very old so he's got to have a beard it's silly that's okay for the children but we have to think in terms of spirit as an energy being a, a force that's everywhere equally present you know, just like Radio, a lot like radio, an electromagnetic force. Of course, radio dissipates through space, but if we're talking about a metaphysical energy that exists beyond space and time, that's completely inclusive and comprehensive, if it's everywhere equally present, it has nowhere to go, it's not going to dissipate. And that's what love is. And that's what compassion challenges us to do love what scares us love what frightens us face your fear because you have a chance to redeem it 
interesting lesson again on this Easter day, to resurrect it, to lift it up. From fear to love, from ignorance to understanding, from the dark to the light. And that's the only way we can end world hunger, for example, or stop war or pedophilia or other forms of child abuse, is to face it and to understand that it exists because we participate in its existence if only by allowing it and, and ignoring it and maybe at best wishing somebody ought to do something about it. Well, here's something you can do about it right here, right today, right now. Let's face it and see how many of our problems in the world are born from this appearance of separation. When in fact, if we, and when we, as we aspire to our spiritual selves, to love as consciousness and conscious awareness as a loving, compassionate, kind, forgiving, merciful, letting go of this oreness of things, O-R, or, this or that, or this, or that, and start substituting the truth, which is this and that, and this, and that, and here, and there, and we, and us. as opposed to they or them. What if there was nobody here but us? When does that consciousness strike you, that there is no them? And there is no other one. This one or that one are descriptive phrases for use when you describe separated form, but Spiritually, one means no other. It's, a, it's an interesting word, this word, one. Because it carries both meanings. The separated one, this one. No, not that one. That one over there. Yeah, that one, the red one. I want that one, not this one. This one's junk. <laughs> I want that one. But it also has the meaning of no other, the only one, the one life, the one thing, the one mind, and yeah, the one heart. So there's no thing and no one not to love. In a spiritual sense, nothing stands outside of love. And we have an opportunity, if not a responsibility, to bring love into those areas that are shadowed. You say, well, if love is the only thing that's real and love is everywhere equally present and everything is love and everyone is love, then uh, what's the problem here? What is this shadow stuff? What is evil? It's fear and ignorance. It plays a very important role, fear and ignorance. 
and when we're not compassionate and refuse compassion, we honor the fear and the ignorance. We're saying I, I may not, uh, I may not be totally happy here, but I'm at least uh, familiar with the pain that goes with living in a world of separated form. And this idea of uh, everybody being part of this one thing, even if from different points of view, even if that doesn't homogenize it, we all are diverse in our characters and our particular, again, I see it as a matter of, of a point of view, POV, they call it in Hollywood, you know. We're all part of one thing, one life, but we do have a particular point of view. We do have unique experiences, particular characteristics. We have our better angels, our better nature, our conscience, this longing that says you are more, you know. There is more to you, you know. And then there is the role of fear and ignorance in our lives. That's where we hide. That's where the shadows are. That's where the work needs to be done. Compassion can be thought of as bringing light into that darkness, understanding to the ignorance. And that's what solves problems. That's what feeds hungry people. That's what stops war. That's what we should be building. It's not more battleships and, and, and rocket ships. Uh, rocket ships for exploration I'm okay with it's the ICBMs I'm I'm talking about we don't need more guided missiles and and tanks and laser guided ways to destroy ourselves with weapons of mass destruction we need to educate the ignorant and comfort those who are frightened it's the only politic there is. And that's a way to look at compassion, one way of looking at it. So with that, let me, let me do a time check here. It's about 10 minutes before the hour. Um, let's go to questions and comments, and um, we'll see who we have who's joined us in the interim. And uh, maybe do a, uh, well, for sure we'll do a guided imagery, a guided meditation on the the topic, compassion, before we go. Okay, so we uh, we have a few callers. Again, star two, if you'd like to talk a little about compassion. And I'll come back to you. Let's go to the text questions, first of all. See who we may have on this uh, this holiday this holy day, Easter 2010. Carol Postel in La Habra, happy Easter. Michael and Doreen, she says, thanks, Carol, happy Easter. Happy Easter, Doreen keeps saying. Phil Jaffe in Canoga says, this is great. Your mystery school topics get better and better each week, never a dull moment. Uh, maybe you're getting better and better each week. <laughs> Thank you for that. Up in Apple Valley, uh, Don is with us and says hello Michael and aloha all I recall learning of the atrocities performed at Abu Ghraib and the torturing of detainees performed by American soldiers and the 
decapitation of Americans by so-called terrorists. And, of course, Don says, my heart immediately went out to the victims. But then I thought about those who inflicted those acts, and it broke my heart to imagine how horrible it must be to have to wake up every day for the rest of your life uh, knowing what you've done so sad. And yeah, that's presuming they have a conscience, and everybody does. There is a group of people, the number is debatable, they used to be called psychopaths, and I believe the proper term these days is sociopath, who by all appearances does not know right from wrong. And uh, a lot of these people are driven by a lust for power and control and authority to some very high places in government and corporations and uh, unions and churches and other institutions. Sociopaths are often found, um, sometimes they have slightly different names, they might be called borderline personalities or narcissists, but... Uh, they're driven into these positions of power. So you look around, often amongst the most powerful are some very sociopathic people. Um, again, I'm not going to name names, but I think we just went through a decade of an administration that was replete with its, its share of sociopaths, people that that did not then and apparently still do not know right from wrong. You know, you cannot defend America with torture because if you torture people, you're not an American. It's it's like impossible uh, to believe in America and its principles and commit such a gross injustice. But um, these are uh, these are the challenges to us is to avoid taking sides and. I, I, maybe I should say that better, not to avoid taking sides, but to go beyond the taking of sides, because we're always going to be more compassionate or compassionate and loving uh, sooner for the victim of some gross injustice, of torture, of well, starvation, uh, or child abuse, or, or those who willingly uh, permit or even promote starvation. The victim, of course, is going to grab our attention first, but the challenge is as Don is saying here, too, is to go all the way and do it for you primarily, all right? Do it for you, and it empowers you to be like an agent for change, like a, uh, in uh, mysticism, sometimes the allegory is the the sage or the or the hermit or the magician who is Christ-like or Buddha-like in their ability to wield love as healing and to uplift and to refine. Again, interesting that this is Easter because these are the deeper allegories of what that resurrection represents. Again, this is... 99% of Christians would say, well, redemption and salvation and resurrection and 
that's all about something you do at the end of your life. If you're a, a Christian anyway and have accepted Jesus as your Savior, and the mystic, uh, especially the alchemist, would say, no, no, I, I don't disagree with you. It's something you do with your life, but it's also something you do with your problems, something you do with adversity in general, something you do when you face fear and what could be called evil in the world, you redeem that situation, you don't kill it. You know, this again, love your enemy. We don't understand that yet. It's 2,000 years. Religious people wave it around. I'm a Christian, love your enemy. Well, they don't really believe it, though. <laughs> we we still bless battleships and and put the, you know, blessing on bombs and have this medieval notion of good conquering evil, good killing evil. Uh, that's not what love does. Good as love and compassion resurrects it, it saves it. Again, um, just like this appearance that, well, don't want to feed too many of those hungry people because they're just going to breed more hungry people. And no, you don't get it. Like, feed them and it'll regulate itself. Help people to be fed and to be well-educated. So we have to look at those contradictions, those paradoxes, face our fears. Okay, um, let me refresh the screen. Anybody else? Yeah, we have Diane in Albuquerque, and she said this is uh, made this one of the richest Easter's that I've ever experienced. Thank you. Uh, had you been behind the pulpit, I would have joined my first church. <laughs> Second point, Diane says, compassion, God's divine con game. She says the giver gets. Tenfold more than the receiver. That's that bread on the water stuff, right? The perpetrators of children, and this is point three, Diane says, um, with regard to perpetrators of children, she says, if we look inside the perpetrator, we would see that the tragedy and sorrow is not just the horrific pain and darkness brought upon the child, but the horrific pain and darkness within the perpetrator as well. There are two to heal. Yeah. And sometimes that's, again, really obvious when we do the research and we see that the the pedophile, the predator, um, is acting out of a uh, un, unrequited, unhealed pain of having been a victim of similar behavior early on. And if not directly, then in a in a metaphorical way, for we all have pain in childhood. Um, remember, con- rape is always much more about control and power than it is about sex. Uh, and the same thing is true with the church. It's just so ironic that a priest would not know power, um, real power, creative power, the power of love, and have to resort to the power of control. Um, so homosexual or heterosexual matters little it's the the problem here is not the sexuality or the sexual orientation um, 
that's not a crime. It's it's the power uh, problem that you have here. That that's the crime. All right, let's go to the telephones then. Thanks, Diane. Oh, did I finish, Diane? Wait a second. Maybe I. Uh, no, I, I guess I did. Two to heal. Okay, thanks, Diane. And um, on the telephone, we have a couple of callers. We have someone in Florida. I don't see a name, but someone calling from Florida. I'm going to bring in. Hello, you're on the live webinar with Michael Benner. Who's this? Hi, Michael. This is uh, Peter from Tampa. It's really nice talking to you. It's been a long time. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I'm trying to face my first fear, which is actually calling you on the phone. So that's something that uh, that I'm getting over right now. So thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for calling, and uh, you've survived, obviously, that first fear. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I guess the reason for my call is, you know, you talked a little bit about um, just the different ways that people can have compassion. Um, you know, I heard you mention something about, you know, family betrayals and how to be compassionate again. And, and then I think about the news and think about all the people that come in from the country as, you know, what we consider, you know, legal people coming in and how we should have more passion or compassion for them. How do you develop compassion, Michael? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I think the first thing, uh, Peter, is intention. I think we just have to put our intention on it, especially given what I've claimed so far, which is that the opportunities for compassion are greatest where we're frightened, where we're terrified. Like we've been talking about global hunger and, and torture and uh, Abu Ghraib and and I mentioned earlier what's so scary about homeless people, and and if we stop to think about it, uh, the idea that we are a human family is at once uh, exciting and encouraging and a beautiful thought to consider, but at the same time carries with it a responsibility that's you know a little daunting or 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 off-putting, I think, at first, and a little scary. It's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, if everybody's my family, then I have more responsibility than than, uh, I've considered before. What am I supposed to do now? I I already feel overworked. So I think, Peter, just to face that, to form an intention to care about (laughs) these people... And, you know, then to move it on out to that whole, well, love your enemy idea that is so challenging to us if we're going to call ourselves Christian or even say we're attracted to Christianity for many reasons, uh, then you better figure out that love your enemy thing at some point. What in the world is meant by all of that and turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile and and you know give the man he asked for your what was it ask for your jacket you give him your jacket and your coat to, 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 to go that extra mile to be that generous 
uh, I think is always uh, a challenge to us. And I think our lives are always full of opportunity uh, to do the hard thing, to face it. And so the very fact that you would ask the question, uh, how do we do that, I think is evidence that you've already answered it. You you answer it, <laughs> the answer is in the question. You know, It's just the caring. And maybe a little bit of persistence, you know, rather rinse, repeat, keep doing it, keep caring. And it's challenging, you know. It's so easy for us to hate. Uh, even as spiritual people, I can get so worked up over the injustices in this world and start pointing fingers at individuals. It's just so easy to do. And yet here's a challenge that that the teachers before us have essentially agreed upon. These spiritual masters all say, no, that's, you know, one of the, there's a religious version of that. Um, you hate the sin, not the sinner. So I guess the mystical version of that would be hate the injustice, but forgive the perpetrator. And hating the injustice is really not hating anyway. It's, uh, again, like today's Easter, we're talking about this alchemical idea of resurrection, which is the alternative to killing evil and killing violence and blowing up bad stuff, is to, to save the parts that are good, to redeem it, to educate it, to teach it. <laughs> and... Uh, I think that's why the dichotomy of love and fear has to replace the old-fashioned good over evil and St. George slaying the dragon as an archetype of of good vanquishing evil. Uh, we don't want to kill the dragon. We want to turn it into a puppy dog, you know. Great. Okay. So, well, thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter, and uh, I appreciate you calling. It's nice to be able to use this feature on our uh, on our webinar system, this calling system. Have a wonderful Easter and a happy holiday and aloha from Maui. Thank you. Thank you to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And um, Robert's with us, too, from West Los Angeles. Hello, Robert. You're on the webinar with Michael Benner. Aloha, Michael. How are you this uh, happy Ascension Day? <laughs> Aloha, Robert. I'm, I'm better and better, thank you. I'm ascending as I speak. Outstanding. Happy holiday to you and uh, Doreen and uh, uh, all of yours out there on the island. Thank you. Hey, uh, you know, one thing I want to say very quickly, uh, may I make a, a point of amplification uh, to what you were just speaking to Peter about? Sure, by all means. But before I do that, I just want to say that to reiterate or say in a different way what a couple of people have already hinted at is I think, you know, after listening to a few of these things and uh, being, uh, without sounding like an arrogant arse, uh, one to know, uh, this uh, presentation you did today was one of the most concentrated, uh, fully developed, um, to the point, uh, meaty uh, uh, presentations that you've done here on the webinar. Um, Thank you. Uh, bravo. Bravo, <laughs> as they say in Italy. Uh, t- 
to the to to Peter. Uh, one of the things that you can do to help yourself uh, in awakening compassion is to realize that your personal evolution will be impossible without it. Uh, the uh, the great our great soul brothers from Tibet remind us that bodhicitta or the awakened heart, which is where compassion comes from, is a prerequisite for evolution. It's not possible without it, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is much of your further development will come from bestowing upon others what you've been blessed to learn. And this is not possible without being able to recognize their states of being as one that you have been in but gotten over. And uh, it requires compassion to remain, uh, to, to maintain your personal and intellectual and emotional equilibrium during that process. As you awaken, it's not difficult to become insane as you become the only awakened person, it's, it's like the person who is not crazy and insane asylum. As you awaken, you realize that so much of the world is nuts. <laughs> and it's possible to really stumble over that. Um, something else that you can do, and we could talk for hours on this point, but one thing you really can do is to realize the greater capacity of yourself to learn anything. And as you do, as you witness your ability to learn something that you thought was, say, impossible for yourself, then your own sense of value and your own worth will increase. And as it does, it is virtually it is a virtual certainty that your sense of the value of another will increase as well, and that will develop your compassion. This this is all terribly important uh, just one word on loving your enemies it's your enemies personal or otherwise are just the people with whom you feel friction in the world that are going to keep you awake and are going to keep you from falling into delusion and self-deception these are the two great enemies of anybody on the spiritual path because it's easier on this path and anything else to fall into delusion and self-deception and it's our enemies that keep us awake to the fact that we're not as perfect as we might imagine and that we're not as developed as we might imagine and that's not necessarily a bad thing we don't have to run into axe murderers and serial killers the buddha would remind us that the stuff of our ordinary life is enough <laughs> More than enough, yeah. Plenty of adventure. Yes. Plenty of opportunity. Robert, thank you. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, uh, not a problem. Not a problem. Yet, uh, why, why, why don't you? Uh, why don't you continue or put the ribbons on it either way? Well, uh, uh, that probably was the the ribbon. The ultimate year. You are uh, the, the Tibetans again would reiterate that you're the people that mm, irritate you on a minor level or, or a little bit or a little more than that or even a moderate bit are really helping you to purify yourself because if you go deep with what's echoing in you, 
then you can you can go to the roots of a lot of things that you might not be able to find otherwise. And uh, like I say, we we go on for hours on this particular topic. You know, you, you mentioned the Sufis. We could talk about the Sufis. We could. It's it's. Uh, you could do uh, a webinar every week for the next ten months and not exhaust this one. Yeah, that's for sure. Thank you, Robert. Take care, and, man. Uh, have a wonderful day. I appreciate you too. Call. Aloha. Aloha. All right. Let's see. Let me find the right button. All right. Thank you guys for calling. And uh, it's fun being able to uh, bring callers in one at a time on what's basically a conference call system, in addition to giving those of you who uh, would rather just send us a text message that opportunity. Um, as well. In fact, um, we jump over there real quickly and see if any others have come in. I guess not. No other text messages. Okay, let's do our uh, guided imagery exercise, and then we'll let you go for the rest of the day today. Have a wonderful uh, holiday, if it is for you a holiday, and if not, every day is a holy day if you use some little piece of it to reorient yourself. And remember who you are and what you're really for. All the opportunities that we have, especially when we look at what's uncomfortable or, or or feels a little bit scary. So I'd like you, if this is a good time for you, to get comfortable. Uh, prop up the pillows a little bit and sit up straight. I'd like you to Consider the word balanced rather than rigid, just nicely balanced. Do a couple of shoulder shrugs and some head rolls. And then balance your head above your shoulders. Put your shoulders back so the rib cage opens naturally. And take a nice, slow, deep breath, inhaling. Ideally, through the nose, if you can, fill your lungs, hold as you peak, and just as slowly exhale. And go beyond where you normally stop, all the way out, pause for just a moment, and then inhale again. As slowly as possible, each cycle will be a little bit longer because as you become more relaxed, you can slow your breathing. And after three or four nice, slow, deep, deliberate breaths, and put your attention on the bottom of your nose, on that ridge line of cartilage between the nostrils. And simply watch your body breathe itself. I use this as a deepening exercise to simply watch my breath for a minute or two at the beginning of pretty much any meditation I do. And offer it to you in that same way. And yet I'd like you to know if you did nothing else for ten minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, or an hour. 
you would be creating for yourself a rich and rewarding benefit, a series of benefits. To simply watch your breath is to develop mindfulness and detachment where you ascend in a sense to a higher perspective and are able to rule over the events and circumstances in your life rather than merely be affected by them or victimized by them. You can rise above them. You'll notice as you watch your breath and your breathing Watch your body breathe itself all by itself. That there will come a time, it may be minutes from now, it may have already happened, but it might be weeks down the road. And still there will come a time when you begin to watch that body that's breathing, almost as if it's somebody else's body and you're seated nearby watching this body breathe. That's the sense of mindful detachment that we all are seeking to develop with our meditation exercises, whether they be narratives like this, guided imagery exercises, where your narrator will invoke certain mental images, even sounds and smells and such, so-called visualization. A chanting meditation, a meditation of affirmations, or a contemplation where you empty the mind and do your best to release all thoughts and feelings, realizing that we are as attached to thoughts and feelings as we are to our bodies and our breathing, but we can let go and persist. With a gentle, fixed attention, on the very point at the bottom of the nose where air enters and leaves the body. With a little smile on your face and an interest in watching this automatic, autonomic ebb and flow, the in-breath and the out-breath, the expansion and the contraction, the yin and the yang and the round and round and round, the cyclical nature, the seasons of all things. You become more than an effect. or a target or a victim of those things. Your perspective is detached 
not dissociated, for you're still focused. It's a step back you take to get an even bigger picture, but to be less at effect and more at cause. To feel less like life is being done to you and more as if it is emanating or radiating from you. Effortlessly. Just by being a living. Others have told you you must earn a living. You must work hard and be productive and leave a trail of evidence that you are producing and building and making and fashioning and designing every waking moment a producer of goods and services for consumption by other people. And the truth is, if you did nothing but breathe, you exist as a human being, not so much a human doing as one that's just being right here, right now, as you watch that breath. Consider that the air molecules the oxygen, the carbon dioxide, the nitrogen, the helium, the other gases that are all blended together in our atmosphere and in the air that we breathe, that every single molecule in every single breath originated in a star someplace and was radiated out into the world into the universe. That all energy comes from stars, and yet all material, all matter, comes from stars. By all appearances, they are convertible. Einstein put an equal sign between energy and mass, It's really all we've got. Spirit and matter, and it comes out of the stars. And the very molecules you just exhaled are molecules that have been inhaled by untold numbers of people. Not just people living on the earth now, but conceivably those very molecules were inhaled and exhaled by people long ago. Some of them famous, perhaps. (laughs) That appeals to the ego, doesn't it? The breath is a way of considering that all things are part of one thing. 
and that this dichotomy, this polarity of the one and the many, is rich. For it expresses not only creation, the one manifesting itself as so many diverse forms, but compassion, love, and consciousness, the soul, the harmony, is the path for the many to return to the one. How do you expect to find your way home? Back to the single source. If your whole sense of your self is a separated self, lonely and alienated, isolated, disconnected, a victim, a target, an effect of something that is not you other than being done to you often unjustly and unfairly. That some part of the one life is opposing your existence. Consider that's a mindset It's a belief system. It's a story you've been told. And given our reliance on physical sense and sensation, it appears to be the case. But in these quiet, reflective states of mind, we can begin to feel the harmony that is the path, the love, the longing, the divine homesickness that takes you from separate through harmonious back to unity in many ways. Literally, and in a hundred thousand allegories, metaphors, similes, symbols, myths, and stories of the shipwrecked adventurer who finds utopia, who through love and compassion and forgiveness faces the fear that had reinforced the sense of separation until faced and understood more completely. Faced and even embraced. And this is the path home through love as harmony and as compassion. The prefix of the word come, cum, is with. Compassion is with passion. Passion is love. Love is many things. It is light. It is healing. It redeems and resurrects. 
it lifts fear from its condition of ignorance to a condition of understanding. It realizes, it makes real. It's always love in the stories, isn't it, that makes Pinocchio a real boy, that makes the Velveteen Rabbit real, that makes Data and Spock so confused (laughs) about their humanity. It's love. As consciousness as compassion, as forgiveness, the most difficult to love somebody who threatens you, to love a condition that scares you, and to be the fearless spiritual warrior that walks directly into the heart of darkness, carrying with you your light that is the love the compassion, whom you are. Your radiance, your light, your love illumines the way as you move toward the darkest of the dark, the scariest, that which frightens you most. And you get better and better and better at it, more and more confident, more and more courageous, more and more successful at redeeming the problems, the ignorance, and the fear in your life. And this is the path home. A little counterintuitive that the way to heaven is through hell, but you're already as dead as you'll ever be. This is as dead as you get. There's nothing ahead but more life and more love more light. Happy Easter. I'd like to give you an opportunity to silently now commit yourself to a program of facing your fear. To look at the global and social, political and economic conditions that scare you, to understand them and thereby redeem them, save them, resurrect them, uplift them, but more to the point, to repeat that in your daily life and affairs, to look at what frightens you. to contemplate what confuses you, to resist the temptation to agree with the voice in your head that says, but you don't really want to go there, and probably say, but I don't really want to go there, (laughs) and instead be the adult in this relationship and say, well, I'm going to take you there. And as the higher intention, you take the ego by the hand and walk directly at what worries you, concerns you, 
makes you nervous. And what frightens and terrifies you, all in good time, little by little, one step at a time, knowing that you are the agent of understanding and compassion and forgiveness that redeems fear into understanding. That's who you are. That's what you do. The less you resist it, the less it hurts, you allow your heart to break and realize that what emerges is a bigger heart, more loving, stronger, more light, mere leaked, mere leaked, <laughs> more light. Love needs to express itself. That's what the universe is. It's a loving awareness that needs expression. You are that expression. You're at the leading edge, the cutting edge of love expressing itself through all of these opportunities that scare you. You know it's ignorance, confusion, misunderstanding and a lack of awareness <laughs> in some combination if it frightens you. You understand it's not real danger, it's only the appearance of danger and you move into it and prove it to yourself again and again. Well, it felt dangerous, but it wasn't danger at all I was afraid of. It was the understanding. So the process unfolds and you evolve and then you consciously initiate and promote your evolution. Imagine. Darwin touched on it, but it's almost veiled as if his theories of natural selection are not radical enough. Darwin, by some indications, did indeed understand that not only the physical species, but intelligence or consciousness behind intelligence evolves too. And we can promote that, initiate that consciously and deliberately. So on this Easter, whether you're Christian or not, or some combination of spiritual being interested in all myths, stories, and legends of a spiritual nature, consider on this Easter Sunday what we've said about compassion and the way that it, in an alchemical sense, resurrects redeems, saves, or uplifts. For it's love as awareness. Put your attention on what scares you, and you understand it. You've lifted it from fear into the light. A much more elegant, graceful, and spiritual approach than killing 
eradicating violently what seems to frighten you or threaten you or confuse you. And bring with you a sense that you can do that, that that's who you are. You are the soul in form, certainly in a separated body, in a world of separated forms. You are the soul in form and yet primarily above and free of form. And identifying as that higher self, you appropriate the ego in this service of redemption. Not just once at the end of your life, however you die, but countless times in each day, redeeming, resurrecting, saving, solving a problem, not by killing it, but by learning from it and bringing your understanding to the situation, your light into the darkness, your love into the fear. And understanding yourself as the consciousness that is capable of such things, designed for such things, you're built for it. It's who you are. It's what you do. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, open your eyes now. Wide awake, alert, back in the room, feeling fine, rested and refreshed. And uh, the whole rest of the the day ahead of you and a brand new week after that. Thank you, thank you so very much for being with us today on this uh, program, Passion for Compassion, on this Easter Sunday. You know, I set the theme before I realized it was Easter, and it just worked out, didn't it? Just worked out that way. So um, I want to remind you to forward these programs to your friends. There's a gadget on our website to do that. Anything you can do to tell your friends about the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School live by telephone or web feed, but also as a podcast. And, And other inspirational programming, too, there are hundreds, thousands of women and men in the field doing very important work. And any time you stumble across a, a, a teacher that you feel has value, promote them too. I'm not just into self-promotion, but you know how people will send emails to each other with with pictures or quotable quotes or a link to an article or something? Do that with these programs. You can forward these programs from theagelesswisdom.com. Click on home page to go inside. It's theagelesswisdom.com. And after you click home page, you'll see some navigation links on the left. Choose the one that says web teleconference, and the whole archive is in there. You can also approach it through the podcast, the iTunes Music Store, uh, we have programs that go back, I think, 140 programs. Some that even go back to the old radio show at KPFK. And, um, and, and 
Podcast Alley and the other major podcast directories and tell your friends about that, too. And, and finally, if you can dig deep and support our project financially, we request a donation of 99 cents a week or $3.96 a month to support this and a premium audio program that I do with my business partner, Steve Snyder. Steve and I have been working together in this field for 35 years and then some. We do a studio-quality audio program called Finding Yourself in Paradise. We've got about 125 of those that are posted, and we'll give you six of them free at FocusedPassion.com. That's our sister site. There's an ED in there. It's the W's.FocusedPassion.com, and just by leaving your name and email, you can get six programs for free, including Accelerated Learning and, my goodness, all kinds of wonderful stuff, a bunch of excerpts and free text articles, white papers and e-books and all kinds of cool stuff at FocusedPassion.com. And then if you want to subscribe for $0.99 cents or upgrade for $0.99 cents a week, three ninety-six a month, that helps to sponsor all of this. That helps us pay our Internet fees or broadband fees and uh, to bring you even more goods and services. So it's nothing you have to do. These webinars on Sunday will always be free. The newsletter, the articles, the other work that we do, all free. But if you can be one of the, we figure, about one in ten people that support us with 99 cents a week, I know it's pocket change, but it's a matter of actually taking the three minutes to sign up. We'd <laughs> we'd really appreciate it. And then you'll get this other program, the Finding Yourself in Paradise audio series with uh, Steve and I that you're going to love. That's really studio quality. I don't have to do it over a telephone. So... That's what sponsors all of this and brings it to you. Uh, Check that out when you get a chance. Have a wonderful day. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. Uh, This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.